whether it's coming in through our mouth and eating or through inhalation, once it hits systemic circulation, it's gonna go anywhere in the body. And so the brain is one of those spots. You're listening to Eat for Life, the show that aims to help you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. I'm your host, Sammy G. If you're struggling with constant brain fog and fatigue despite lifestyle and dietary changes, biotoxin illness due to mold exposure may be to blame. Mycotoxins are a very dangerous byproduct of some molds and have the ability to be stored away in your body's fatty tissues, something I commonly see in women with breast implants and autoimmune diseases. In today's episode, Dr. Lauren Tessier joins me for a very important conversation about biotoxin illness resulting from mold exposure. Dr. Tessier is a practicing naturopathic physician licensed by the state of Vermont. Her practice, Life After Mold, in Waterbury, Vermont, services those suffering from multi-symptom, multi-system illness, complicated by comorbid conditions such as multiple chemical sensitivities, mast cell activation syndrome, and chronic infections including Lyme and other co-infections. Welcome, Dr. Tessier. This is such an important topic, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for the chance to come on and share some some good news about mold and mycotoxins. So before we dive in, I'm really curious, what was the turning point for you that kind of propelled you to specialize in biotoxin illness? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so I moved to Vermont after I got out of school and I hung my shingle as a primary care provider and had a, a great time with the community here. But there was a couple of cases that I ran into where they were just uh, really resistant to treatment, uh, meaning that the symptoms were not the people. And we tried so many different things and the whole traditional naturopathic approaches, functional medicine approaches really just weren't sticking um, and I knew about the history of this local area of having a uh, flood in 2011 with Hurricane Irene. Um, it really just broke the heart of the community here, you know, not just a emotional trauma, but, you know, also physical trauma with loss of possessions and water damaged homes. And I had that in the back of my mind. But as I started working with a couple of key folks, um, pieces of it really just got put together. You know, they're working in their office. There was the flood a couple of years ago, and they had this combination of an allergic picture, but also this kind of toxic neurological picture. And that's really what set my um, my curiosities going forward with mold. And um, as the years progressed, of course, I've had my own personal run-ins with mold. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, the big things that really keeps me going is a, a family member of mine passed when I was younger from a very severe autoimmune disease. And I very specifically remembered when we were going in and, you know, caring for their possessions after the fact. And it was a, it was a daylight basement apartment and there was, there was mold in there. Mm. And, you know, I can't say that there's a specific causation there, but the correlation is just, you know, always been in my mind's eye. And if I can help more people from just getting better and not going that path or their loved ones from going that path. I'm, I'm more than happy to keep on doing what I'm doing. So mm. it's kind of the short end of it. Thank you for sharing that with us because I think we all have 
a, a story that connects us to the work that we do and propels us into the work that we do. I, I know for many years, I really struggled with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. And I finally figured out what was the underlying chemistry to that? And that changed me forever. So I just, I love the fact that you're seeing a need that wasn't being served and you just stepped up and said, I, I, I need to serve these people. Uh, mold is just, it's out there, but not in the way that you're sharing it and presenting it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion uh, about how it can impact uh, one's life. So thank you for being of service and sharing your, you know, your knowledge with us. I'm just going to dive in. So what are mycotoxins? Good question. <laughs> so um, I, I like people to kind of have an understanding of the difference between mold and mycotoxins. Mycotoxins are what is produced by molds and yeasts. Molds and yeasts are two different types of fungi. Mm -hmm. So the mycotoxins are their metabolites. It's like what they make. So for instance, you know, a brewer's yeast makes an alcohol the same way a uh, mold or other yeast would make a mycotoxin. So Mycotoxins are very, very small molecules. Um, they are lipophilic, so they pass through anything fatty really well. So that means in through the cell membrane, into the mitochondria, and even into your tissues that have a lot of fat, a lot of dense fat. So that's going to be your neurological tissue, your liver, your kidneys. Um, so mycotoxins, um, you know, they can be found anywhere in the body. And because they're so small, because they travel around easily, once they get in, they really circulate um, really well. So um, that's kind of the, the 20,000 foot view of, of what mycotoxins are. I, I appreciate you breaking that down in, in easy to understand language that essentially they are the exhaust and, and, you know, how that can impact the body. So, so what are some symptoms associated with mycotoxins and, you know, what, what you call biotoxin illness? Sure, sure. Kind of to pan out a little bit. I like talking about um, mold illness from kind of four different facets. Um, because of the work that Richie Shoemaker has done with the world of SIRS and chronic inflammatory response syndrome, biotoxin illness has become synonymous with mold illness. But I think of mold illness as more of an umbrella, a catch-all. And under that umbrella, we have allergy. So mold allergy. We have fungal infections. We have mycotoxicosis. So it's the toxic state from mycotoxins. And then we have that SIRS, that chronic inflammatory response syndrome, that biotoxin illness. So when I work with people, I always kind of look at the toxic picture first, because I find that if we clear out that mycotoxicosis, then in most cases, what looks like a biotoxin illness gets kind of cleared out with it. Biotoxin illness is what remains after you've done the cleaning out. So when I have people come in, we see typically from that toxic perspective, a lot of hormonal and neurological complaints. But if we go to that other disease state that's under that umbrella of mold illness, the biotoxin illness, that's when we start thinking of SIRS. That's when we start thinking of the um, multi-system, multi-symptom illness. So lots of different complaints throughout the body. Um, you know, everything from the neurological and hormonal that we see with just the, the solo toxicosis, 
but also the immune system dysregulation, um, all of the, the respiratory, cardiac inflammation stuff that goes along with it. So, you know, when, um, we ask like, what are some of the so- uh, symptoms associated with biotoxin illness? It's more of this like, well, what's not, you know? <laughs> yeah, good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's, you know, a, a cluster and a group of symptoms that Shoemaker has identified. And some of the kind of more oddball ones out there that might kind of perk people's ears up are like nosebleeds and electric shocks and things like that. Increased thirst, increased urination, difficulty of holding on to water, even that POTS picture where people stand up and they get lightheaded and kind of feel like they're going to pass out. But, you know, the list is so, so long when it comes to, to uh, biotoxin illness to the point that there's so many clients who come into me who have been treated for Lyme disease and tick-borne illness for years and years and years, never really realizing that it could theoretically be mold that really needed to be addressed instead of Lyme. And, you know, we call Lyme the great mimicker the same Mm -hmm. way that we used to call syphilis the great mimicker. So I'm kind of adding mold into (laughs) that lump of the great mimicker group for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Is this, I'm just curious, like, is, is testing difficult then when there are so many variables here? Oh, for sure. For sure, absolutely. Yeah, because there's a lot of tests out there that you can order as a practitioner, but I, I often wonder, is this really viable? Yeah, and that's the nice part about my practice is it has the name Life After Mold. There's mold in the title. So the people I attract to my practice are people who have really started to consider mold. And I empathize with so many different practitioners who don't have this specialty where they really need to try to bring up um, mold to their clients in a very gentle way. And, you know, it, it becomes a struggle for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can really relate to that because I've been doing my work for, oh gosh, almost 13 years now. And my focus has always been in the area of, of, you know, mental health and autism. And we know there's a huge undercurrent there with regard to environmental triggers and endocrine disruptors and things like that. I've had the pleasure of working with quite a few women that have had breast implants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you can speak into that heavily as well. Um, the repercussions there, not only metals, but again, what, as the mold forms, whether there's a rupture or not, there's going to be an output and exhaust those mycotoxins. And there's so much going into that. Uh, and so much that needs to occur after explant. And, and also, you know, we, we think of mold in the home and that's a big, Big, uh, a big trigger, especially as houses are being built closer together, uh, less circulation between walls and then routers and things like that. Are there other areas I- I'm curious that, that you're seeing where where molds can uh, proliferate and, and cause challenges for people? Oh, for sure. It's like anywhere that has humidity. Yeah. You know, spores are ubiquitous. And so if the humidity is not controlled, then that's when you have those, those big blooms. But once there is mold growth, it's not enough to control humidity. You need to physically remove it and then control the humidity as the prevention once everything's cleaned up. But anyway, going back to, to what you asked, homes for sure. I've seen cars be something that, uh, is the unexpected for people or, you know, the lingering issue. Um, I have seen workplaces without a doubt, and there's a heavy sigh there because I, I would be remiss to not uh, mention schools. It's it's concerning the state of our schools. 
churches, you know, they say in the workplace, you know, that's, that's really some of the biggest uphill battles that I see with clients is in the workplace. But we have stats that show that up to 85% of commercial buildings have either a current or a past history of water damage. And so, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It really is. But it's not to say that everywhere is dangerous for someone with mold exposure or with a history of mold exposure, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The car thing, you never think of that because you're not living in your car, but you spend a lot of time in your car if you're someone that travels. So I'm glad that you mentioned that one because I think that that's important. I'm curious with regard to electromagnetic fields and routers and things like that, is there any research and data in that regard? There's a potential theoretical. You know, anytime that we place a mold under stress, whether it's temperature stress, um, vibrational stress, uh, physicals, like you name the type of stress, mycotoxins have or molds have a potential to increase more mycotoxins. I have also heard that claim of EMFs uh, cause more mycotoxin production. I've not found the, you know, PMID that <laughs> specifically shows that. And there are a couple of physicians who have made claims to that. And well, I don't think it's necessarily erroneous. I, I do think that there could be a connection there. But what I tend to think... Um, more about is not so much the cause, but the correlation within the person. Mm. So if you're someone who is already sick from mold exposure, your nervous symptom system is sensitive. And then on top of that, you're in fight or flight. There's going to be so many things that perturb your system and upset your system and prevent you from getting well. And who am I to say that EMFs are, are not one of them. And we really do lack a lot of the proper research that would really be required to validate the safety of EMFs. And, you know, personally, I, I turn off my router at night at home. You know, it's, it's not worth finding out about 20 years from now, the same way cardiologists used to smoke cigarettes in the, you know, 40s and 50s. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I had Nick Pino and he's the EMF yes. guy on, on yep. the show. And, and it was, you know, it's just mind blowing what is not regulated. And also when we look at autoimmune diseases, you know, mm-hmm. we got to take a, a step back and say, okay, wow, what's really, you know, what, what's going on here? Um, yeah. what's going on in our environment? Um, with more of these towers, 5G, now they're talking about 6G and on and on. I'm curious if we can go back um, to to how these things impact the brain and also mm-hmm. talk about neurotransmitter production and what you see in your practice in that regard. Oh, for sure. I would love to talk about that. <laughs> so you know how when you go through the literature, there are some things that you find you're like, oh my gosh, this is a gem. How are people not talking about this? Like, And you kind of hold on to it. And it really helps shape and pave the way of your practice. One of the most revealing, but also upsetting research studies I had seen was post-mortem analysis, so autopsy of children in a um, developing country who 
they found aflatoxin in their high fat tissues, just like we talked about earlier in their brain, in their liver and their kidneys. They found these on autopsy. Now, aflatoxin is really, it's, it's everywhere in the food system. Um, it's likely that these kids were ingesting it. So even with ingesting, it was getting around to the body. You know, when you ingest something, it goes down to the gut and then it gets pulled into the liver circulation system, kind of gets cleaned up and filtered supposedly, and then gets routed into the main circulation system. If it went through the gut and it went through all that filtration and it still made it to the brain, that's something we really need to sit with and wrap our heads around. We know that these things cross the blood-brain barrier, not only through ingestion, but we've also seen in animal literature that inhalation through the nose can lead to necrosis, so dying tissue in the olfactory, so the, the, the scent bulb in the brain. So there's a little highway that's full of fat because it's all nerves between the nose and the brain. And they found in animal studies that those mycotoxins can crawl up that nerve and seat themselves in the brain. So we have two ways that they can get into the body, in, into the brain. The third way, of course, is through inhalation. In animal studies, they found that inhalation has a 20 times higher bioavailability, so ease to get into systemic circulation, than compared to a direct injection into the gut. Mm. So when we sit back, we really wrap our heads around that. It's like whether it's coming in through our mouth and eating or through inhalation, once it hits systemic circulation, it's going to go anywhere in the body. And so the brain is one of those spots. So we know from some of the animal research and from some of the human cell line research um, that these particular mycotoxins, certain of them, have the ability to shift your serotonin and your dopamine. And these are two really important neurotransmitters for balancing lots of different things, but, you know, mostly your moods. The other thing that we see is mycotoxins also cause direct inflammation to the brain tissue once they get in there. And we have seen that neuroinflammation can also lead to shifts and changes in those serotonin and dopamine levels. And that's just to say serotonin and dopamine. That's not getting into you know, all of the hormones that are coming from our master hormone gland, you know, the pituitary, there's animal studies that show our growth hormone, our ACTH, or excuse me, um, the growth hormone stimulating factor, FSH, LH, which are really involved in female cycles. Um, just it, it's huge. So it's, it's amazing to really wrap your head around, no pun intended, around the the impact of these things on the brain. Your brain is your your computer that runs everything yes. in your body. It is your hardware. And if you're putting things in there that are, it's like pouring water on a computer, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> like Absolutely. So usually when I see this toxic component for people, there is that neurological thing, whether it's mood or um, depression or, you know, uh, labile mood swings, um, severe fatigue, brain fog, but even above and beyond brain fog, short-term memory issues, word difficulty, word finding difficulty, following conversation, reading comprehension. Um, The list just goes on and on and on. And it's just so heartbreaking to see so much of the 
neurocognitive clinical complaints just totally be ignored by um, Western medicine. And to be honest, that's like the bulk of the symptoms that come into my practice. I'm so glad you said that because, and I agree with you and it makes me angry that so many people are still, there's this medical gaslighting that goes on. Oh, it's, yeah. you know, it's all in your head. I mean, well, yeah, if the toxin is, <laughs> you know, impacting the brain in that way, but rather than support and, and have compassion for the patient, it's just write a script, move on. And you know, that medical gaslighting lays such a crummy foundation for the dialogue that alternative providers, holistic providers, functional providers then have to have later on about retraining the limbic system, about uh, getting you out of fight or flight and getting you into rest, digest, and heal because you're saying mind-body medicine. And meanwhile, all they can think about is the doctor who told them that they were fine and put them on an antidepressant. As a follow-up to that, so not only is it causing future issues with rapport, we also see that there's some clients who do respond well to being stabilized by an antidepressant as they are going through this. There's some people who have schizophrenic-like symptoms, and these are in really severe cases, who really need to be um, managed and supported as you're going through the detox and supporting them with them understanding that this is a tool and it's not that it's all in their head. It's just trying to give them a band-aid so you can move through and get them to the other side. And so that medical gaslighting totally endangers that conversation. Um, actually, both of those conversations. So yeah, there's there's so many difficult levels to a PCP just saying, here's some search your lane, go on your way. Exactly. Uh, so well said. I'm so glad you spoke into that. That whole statement, so powerful for people to hear so that they can understand, you know, just the process a little bit better. I also loved what you said as you were mentioning that study in children, the aflatoxins that were found. And, you know, with grain production and glyphosate and all of those things that are being uh, consumed at high levels, and, you know, so many people are still consuming a very processed what we call in this country standard American type diet. But I automatically thought of that, the grain production and the molds that tend to grow. And that's why they're using the glyphosate. They're using it as a desiccant. They're using it in every process or every area of the process of, of growing these grains uh, and harvesting and so forth. But does it really kill off the mold? No, no, it doesn't. So, and, and we see that in other things, you know, nuts and seeds, of course, and, and, and other, um, uh, you know, plant-based uh, uh, products that are on the market. One of the trippiest pieces of research or two trippy pieces of research I saw was mold spores found in sea salt. And spores is one thing, but growth is another thing. So, wow. you know, just let that hang there. And then the other one was wow. organic baby food has recently really come under a lot of scrutiny, not only for a lot of the heavy metals that was just recently reported mm -hmm. in some right. of these baby foods, but also... When we don't use antifungals, we tend to find a higher rate of mycotoxins in the food. So there's this like, what do we do with that? What do we do mm. with that? The fact that, you know, the, the organic baby food that I was giving to my kid on the fly between meals when we had to go somewhere and it, I thought I was doing the best I could. And meanwhile, I'm potentially giving him more glypho, uh, glyphotoxin, giving him more aflatoxin when the latter is less aflatoxin with more mm. glyphosate like 
what are we wow. expected to do? You know? Wow. I'm so glad you brought that up in the sea salt. I mean, I never, I hadn't heard that before and I never would have thought about that, but, but that makes sense to me. We just have to be so careful these days and you spend so much money on this beautiful, wonderful organic food. And yeah, you still have to question and wonder, am I still being safe? Am I still being protected? Uh, you know, what, what what's really going on in production? So I'm gl so glad that you mentioned that. Let's talk about the nervous system. I mean, we talked about, you know, you, you kind of spoke into a little bit in, in your overview about how hormones get dysregulated. And uh, of course, neurotransmitters are part of that. But what about the nervous system? You also mentioned the limbic system, um, of which that's all connected. But, but I'd love it if you could speak into the impact on, on those uh, areas as well. Sure, sure. So when we think about the impact on the nervous system, there's a few different ways that molds and mycotoxins can fumble things up. So just to kind of get the mold compartment out of the way, so the, the organism, what produces the mycotoxins, we know that if someone has a mold allergy, they're likely going to produce histamine. There's mm. going to be some histamine interface. And so oftentimes, um, you know, we will see a histamine impact in the brain. And what does that look like? It looks neuroexcitatory. It can be a big anxious picture. It can be like an insomnia picture. It can be that brain fog. Um, so there's that histamine allergy neuro connection. And if we go into the, the mycotoxin level, mycotoxins are going to cause oxidative damage to any of the fatty tissues. So specifically in those cases, we call that lipid peroxidation. Um, so not only things that are rich in tissues, but we also have to think, or fat, excuse me, we also have to think about our cells, which have that fatty membrane on the outside. And then our mitochondria, which is the powerhouses of the cells, also have that fatty membrane. So we have the outside of the cell and the inside of the cell, which can suffer oxidative damage because of these mycotoxins. And so once you cause that local oxidative damage, you also start bringing all this inflammation into the area. And so when you do that, you're also bringing in fluid and swelling and edema, um, and you're also activating these nervous system cells. So in addition to the local oxidative damage, we also see microglial activation for people. We will see, um, in some cases, uh, brain swelling on a specific type of MRI. So yeah, that's, that's really the physiological changes that happen there. But, you know, if you dig into the literature a little bit more, you can even see alterations on um, PEMT scans, so blood flow scans and metabolism scans of the brain. And that work was done, I believe, by Dr. Ray, who passed a few years ago. We've also seen in some of those same uh, research studies that I think Dr. Ray, Dr. Thrasher, and I want to say maybe Dr. Gray was involved in them, they also were able to identify autoimmune antibodies to nervous mm, tissue right. when people were exposed to a water damage building. So, you know, the list goes on and on and yeah. on about these impacts to the nervous system. Mm -hmm. The kind of further downstream issue about lipid peroxidation is it causes uh, lasting damage to the cell and then the cell panics and starts moving its calcium everywhere. And so part of that oxidation damage that you witness with mycotoxins is also kind of a, a calcium shift. The, the cells really become calcified mm -hmm. and start down their path to 
not doing too well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that as well. People in general that are trying to figure out you know, more about mold and more about how that's impacting them. Is is there one thing you wish people would, would think about with regard to mold that really isn't out there so much? Maybe a, a twofold part. One is for the um, clients and maybe one is for the practitioners and clients. For the clients, I really would like people to know or to be aware that every case is going to look different. Your symptoms are going to look different. Your case approach is going to look different. And even what items in your home you can remediate safely. How symptomatic you're going to be to just a little mold versus Joe Schmo, who's not at all symptomatic to lots and lots of mold. Every case is so uniquely different. I really want to offer people just the reassurance to know that it is okay to proceed slowly and cautiously with your best interest in mind. And what I mean to say here is do not get swept up into the, I was online and in this group, someone said I have to throw out all my personal items and I have the dreaded gene. And I'm. Mm. It's, there's so much damning and fear that goes into this process. And because people think that their case is going to be similar to everyone else's, they listen to that and they listen to a lot of the fear around that. And that puts them in a fight or flight and that causes an added trauma to the diagnosis. And so I just, I really want people to tread carefully and honor the fact that their case could very well be different than any other case that they read about. And I understand the desire to want to learn and edify yourself and try to prepare yourself for what may come, but please just treat yourself gently and move forward just cautiously um, because there's a lot of information out there. And it's not that the information is misinformation. It just might not be applicable to you. Mm, well said, beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. And what about uh, for practitioners that might be listening in? Yeah. Any just, words for them? Yes. Be careful how you code. Be careful how you code. Diagnostic codes for mold-related illness do not exist the way we wish them to exist. There is a big movement for people to use this particular code that is R65.10, which is called Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, SIRS. This is different than CIRS. The moment you put that code on a lab requisition that is going to get submitted to a company, an insurance company is going to see that code and they're going to go, oh, well, it looks like that person pretty much had sepsis. SIRS is totally different from CIRS, and it just irks me. There is actually no true diagnosis code for CIRS or biotoxin illness or SIRS with a C at this time. And so just because you're trying to get a lab covered for someone, that can follow them. For the rest of their life and coding something as simple as brain fog which i think is like i can't remember the code for it but the most commonly code commonly used code for brain fog 
if you dig a little bit deeper in that code subset, you are going to find early onset Alzheimer's. So you code brain fog, you send it off, it gets somehow to the insurance company on a super bill because they're paying out of pocket. And all of a sudden the insurance company has on record or in their medical record that they have a code that could potentially mean early Alzheimer's. Wow. What happens when that person goes to apply for life insurance? Exactly. And wow. so, <laughs> and also as a patient, you have every right to ask what you're being coded with and what you're being diagnosed with. And it does not hurt for a physician to code you with fatigue or muscle pain, or it's okay to code symptoms for people. What's not okay is misdiagnosing someone to try to get a catch-all disease state that is not that disease state. Mm -hmm. Wow. Just like we all deserve informed consent, right? Um uh, I'm so glad you said that. That was really powerful. Uh, I think not only for practitioners to hear, but also, um, and potential patients to understand more about what your rights are and what the repercussions could be, uh, in the future. And, and you know, it's heartbreaking that we have to think about these uh, things so critically, but, um, unfortunately that's our world today. Uh, before I let you go, I'm curious if there is a specific pattern that you see in your patients routinely uh, or something that you see kind of over and over again. Sure. Fatigue and brain fog, headaches correlated with some type of periosity. So meaning like, let's say these things are worse in the morning after I've slept on my mattress for eight hours, or they are worse on a Friday night, and then Sunday I feel pretty good two hours after returning to work on Monday, the fatigue, the brain fog sets in. One of probably the biggest patterns that I see with people, and I mean, I'm using brain fog loosely, but it's that feeling of, you know, your head is full of cotton, your head doesn't feel attached to your neck, you have this floating feeling like you are not in it. You're not in reality. You're not plugged in. You're not on. You're not with the flow. Brain fog is such a huge component. And with that goes fatigue. Everything else, of, of course, happens for people. But those are really the two, two big, big, big ones that I see for people. Yeah, I think that's really important to hear. Just giving people hope, helping people understand every case is unique. And yet there are specific symptoms that, you know, very strongly correlate. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Um, one of the, the things that I also like reminding people of is that there's there can be more than one thing wrong with you. There can be more than one thorn in the lion's paw, you know? Yeah. Um, so mold has this ability and mycotoxins have this ability to suppress the immune system. What they do is they mess with something called our T helper cells. And depending on what happens with your T helper cells, how they shift, how they change, someone can kind of go a little bit more allergic. Someone can go a little bit autoimmune. Um, and then there can be this weird chaos where there's a conglomeration of the two, an amalgamation of the two. So because we know that our immune system is able to be impacted by mold and mycotoxins, it's not uncommon for people as their immune system is suppressed, and I use that term admittedly loosely, as that immune system is suppressed, it's not uncommon to see people's um, Epstein-Barr virus pop up. 
Mm, It's not uncommon to see someone's Bartonella flare or their Lyme flare. And so what I usually do with people is we do that initial detox of clearing out all the mycotoxins from their system. And then we see what their immune system can do on its own with those infections. So I like letting people know that there can be kind of bumps on the road in recovery. And just because you feel kind of crummy doesn't mean that you're necessarily having a re-exposure. It could be that your immune system is finally waking up to something that's kind of been, you know, um, allowed to to run wild and unchecked for some time. So I I like reminding people that there can be more than one thing that's upset with uh, your system. We certainly are complex organisms. Most of the time, 99% of the time, it is multiple things that are underlying. There might be one big, big area, um, but there's often just so many other things that are connected to that. So I really appreciate you uh, reminding us of that and giving people hope. And and again, just thank you for for coming on the show today and thank you for your great work. And and we're just so blessed to have you in the world sharing sharing your knowledge with us. Well, I've had a great time and it's really an honor to be here and I'm always willing to to chat more and more about mold. Um, one more thing that I would just like to share for people who are looking for help or physicians who are looking to learn more. I am the president of an organization called ISEAI-ICI um, and it's the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. And what we do there is we help train and educate practitioners on how to navigate this world with their clients. And on that website, Practitioners can join, but also patients can go to the Get Help page and see if there are any members listed in their local area. So that can be really a a hopeful place to start for people. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely link that in the show notes. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you. Uh, and, And thank you again for your time. Wonderful to have you. Absolutely. Such an honor. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you have a loved one suffering from any of the symptoms Dr. Tessier and I discussed, please share this episode. Dr. Tessier reminds us to always think of mold when treatments aren't sticking or when you aren't finding answers. You can find Dr. Tessier at lifeaftermold.com. I believe sharing is caring, so I have a favor to ask. If my show is helpful to you, I would be so honored if you would leave me a review in iTunes so more people can find me. It is through sharing that we create community, eliminate guilt and shame, and bring about healing. Thank you in advance for taking five minutes out of your day to support my show so others can find me. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player.